Well, hello there, dear listener. You've stumbled upon the latest episode of The Plunge, your favorite weekly podcast where we identify the clogs in politics and pop culture. As always, your hosts have a great show for you. There's hot gossip flying off the shelves this week. We're talking, of course, about Fire and Fury, Michael Wolff's account of the Trump White House's chaotic interior. We'll read and react to some of the weirdest, cattiest, and downright craziest things in the book, including mind-bending quotations from Steve Bannon, Jared Kushner, and all those with the name Trump. We'll also talk about who Michael Wolff is, whether we can trust him, or whether that even matters. After our journey into the bowels of the trump apocalypse, we'll change gears and check in with the resistance. Democratic Senator Doug Jones turned heads by picking Dana Gresham as his chief of staff, making Gresham the only black chief of staff for the Senate's Democrats. Many news outlets story ran with this as a decontextualized civil rights victory. But stay tuned, folks. There's a twist. Meanwhile, ex-president and newly minted water sports aficionado Barack Obama blessed us with his best of 2017 list. We'll see what tracks Obama claimed to like this year and debate whether or not he actually listened to them or simply pulled an NSA and spied on his daughter's Spotify lists. This week, we also have an international story for you. We're going to be talking about the protests that began in Iran before the new year. We'll give you the lowdown on what we know so far, and then we'll pivot and relentlessly rip on the right wing's false sympathy and bloodthirsty interest in regime change. As an extra bonus, I will personally destroy right-wing internet troll Ben Shapiro's argument about how the Iran protests are somehow a form of owning the libs. In the pop culture corner, Dan and I are going to go head-to-head in one of our first-ever on-air disagreements. We're talking about Dave Chappelle's comeback and the role of criticism and woke politics in the decidedly not-woke field of stand-up comedy. Don't worry, folks. Dan didn't cry too much when I owned him. This week's story time is a touching tale of generosity and civility on the New York subway. Okay, obviously that is not true. Dan is going to tell you about a fierce confrontation he had with a fellow subway rider, just another atomized soul under late capitalism, and there will be a baby hand involved. This is truly a wonderful episode, and hopefully you can forgive us for being a bit late this week. If you really want the episodes to come out on time, feel free to DM either of us, and I'm sure we can discuss a substantial cash donation in order for us to make punctuality a reality. Well, folks, we got all that and more. Stay tuned for another wonderful episode of The Plunge. think you could be doing anything else right now there are thousands of podcasts perhaps millions of podcasts but you've chosen a podcast hosted by two men two boys two courageous individuals who are willing to plunge the depths for you so you don't have to right sam that's right you're listening to the plunge this is the plunge podcast a weekly show where we identify the clogs in politics and pop culture and i have to say sam things are heating up um, a lot in these trying times. 
Would you say there's a lot of fire and fury out there? Oh, baby. Uh, you know, you said before we started taping that every time you hear fire and fury, you think not of Donald Trump's ridiculous, like, golf course proclamation that he was going to, like, rain down flames upon Korea. But instead, that it reminded you of this Dragon Force song. Yeah. Shout out Guitar Hero, what was that, Guitar Hero 2? Uh, I think that was Guitar Hero 3, actually. I think it was the first Guitar Hero video game I bought. <laughs> um, before we get to this new book, Fire and Fury, that is uh, the talk of the town right now, let's just talk about, we're taping this uh, Saturday morning, and um, Donald Trump has had a hell of a morning. Um you know, the New York Times, I think, you know, they're the paper of record, you'd say, right, Sam? Uh, I mean, as much as I rig, ra- as much as I rag on them, it's basically where I kind of get my average newspaper news. So they said this morning, and it's one of these articles that essentially is like a tweet recap, but <laughs> I'm afraid this is just too funny to ignore. Trump defends his mental capacity, calling himself a genius. <laughs> <laughs> so here here are the tweets verbatim now that russian collusion after one year of intense study has proven to be a total hoax on the american public the democrats and their lapdogs the fake news mainstream media are taking the old <laughs> ronald reagan playbook and screaming mental stability uh and intelligence. Wait, yeah. he says screaming mental stability, not <laughs> instability. Actually, throughout my intelligence. Actually, throughout my life, my two greatest assets have been mental stability and being like really smart. <laughs> Literally, comma like comma really smart. <laughs> Crooked Hillary Clinton also played these cards very hard, and as everyone knows, went down in flames. <laughs> He's not wrong. In I went flames? <laughs> She's living in, like, Chappaqua. Yeah, I went down in flames. She, like, took a private jet home and then ate, like, an $800 steak. Like, fuck you. I went from very successful businessman to top TV star, we're entering, like, the third or fourth tweet now, to president of the United States, uh, in parentheses, on my first try. <laughs> Are you a fucking baby? Baby's first presidency? He was in the primary in 2012, so it's not exactly his first try. I guess it's his first time, like, being the candidate, but honestly, we all knew that him even becoming a Republican candidate was kind of a wild accomplishment. I think that would qualify as not smart, but genius, and a very stable genius at that. Jesus fucking Christ. You know, Trump's really been um, going off on Twitter since this, like, this book, uh, Fire and Fury, has been on the uh, political horizon. I think it first jumped on a few days ago when, like, 
it was reported that Steve Bannon, I think the Guardian got access to a snippet of the book with um, some like juicy Steve Bannon quotes. And that means that Trump is just going buck wild on Twitter attacking Steve Bannon. You sent me a tweet last night from Donald Trump saying Michael Wolf is a total loser who made up stories in order to sell his really boring and untruthful book. He used sloppy Steve Bannon who <laughs> cried when he got fired and begged for his job. Now sloppy Steve has been dumped like a dog by almost everyone. Too bad. <laughs> you had Steve Bannon crying? Crying. <laughs> All I wanted was was a war against the Judeo-Christian civilization and the Islamic civilization, and now I'm fired. <laughs> All I wanted was settlements in Gaza. <laughs> this is just fucking bonkers. All I wanted was to move the capital to Jerusalem. <laughs> Oh, all I wanted was to dominate the cucks. I just wanted to make the the what the San Jose Padres chicken into a Barney style like kids hero. Oh my god! Yeah, shout out to our episode talking about his uh, films. Um, the first episode. Yeah, and this is really just uh, funny to think about because one thing that the author, Michael Wolf sort of almost has going for him in the same way that Trump did, I think, is that he's an outsider. He always defends his reporting, but nonetheless seems to revel in this persona as a contrarian who bucks the more self-serious journalistic herd. So... You're seeing with Michael Wolf. he's someone who's been around for a while. He's um, a New York media writer. He's someone who definitely is not into the self-serious uh, types. He's criticized like Maggie Haberman and um, other prominent uh, journalists covering Trump uh, in the past. So this isn't a guy everyone loves, which is kind of interesting, I thought. Yeah, actually, that um, the Trump tweet you sent me last night where he said that Steve Bannon, like, cried when he was fired, it came with, like, an attachment. I think he was quote-tweeting someone who put up a picture of Michael Wolf with a disturbing, like, seductive look, and uh, it says, liar and phony at the top, and it has, a quote, it has quotes from, like, a bunch of other journalists, like Maggie Haberman from The New York Times, saying that he gets basic details wrong, um... John Poderetz at the New York Post accused him of blithe ignorance, which is a pretty spicy, uh, you know, accusation coming out of the New York Post. But <laughs> that's just funny. Yeah, it's the fucking Post. Come on. It's not like this domain of integrity. But here are another uh, couple of criticisms of Michael Wolf, just so we get that out of the way first. Because initially when this story, you know, was first coming out, I was kind of skeptical, like, all right, this is probably just some fucking schmuck who's trying to write, like, fan fiction and then get everyone to buy it for a couple of weeks and then sell a bunch of books. But I, based on everything I've read, it seems like he, you know, while 
a lot of it is uh, definitely hard to source or cite, you know, because they're private conversations, uh, you know, often blurring the on record and off the record uh, rules. Bl- but I don't know, you know, in such a chaotic administration, perhaps Michael Wolf is the journalist we deserve. Bloomberg View columnist, uh, and these are aggregated in the Politico article uh, talking about Michael Wolf's uh, credibility. Uh, I wonder how many White House staff, this is Bloomberg View columnist Joe Nocera. I wonder how many White House staff told Wolf things off the record that he used on the record. He's never much cared about burning sources. Can't imagine that many of those quotes were meant for publication. And then, uh, journalist turned financier and former Obama auto czar and friend of the show Stephen Ratner said, Bannon may well have said all that stuff, but let's remember that Wolf is an unprincipled writer of fiction. Now, Sam, we called out Stephen Ratner's terrible healthcare article a few weeks ago from the New York Times. Yeah, uh, all the plunge heads will remember uh, we called out his preposterous fucking um, op-ed that he wrote in the New York Times, uh, one of the standard issue ones they do, um, like attacking single payer as, you know, pie in the sky idealism. He most memorably in the piece, he called Bernie Sanders crusty and then like accused him of banging on about like policy. I was like, banging on means just talking and explaining. Not, he's not like howling. They just, they just characterize him as like, a, a, like an angry old Jewish man on the corner. <laughs> this like yeah, shouting she, like... <laughs> shouting man in like park slope like with a rent control like um (laughs) so it's funny because radner also as a way to discredit wolf uh brought up this (laughs) uh thing in 2003 about wolf using a play date between their two children as a means to extract uh, information for a story from Ratner calling Wolf a total sleaze bag. And, like, to me, that's not that. That's not that weird. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It does we? I think we've established that Wolf is kind of like a potentially credible, but also like a, a bit of an outsider in the journalistic community. Definitely. So New York Mag had uh, an excerpt from the book and Sam you posted on Twitter about these lanyards waiting outside bookstores to get this fucking book right yeah while we are talking about the book on the podcast while it is like funny stuff the nerd culture in DC uh triggers my inner bully I think so seeing all these like nerdy lanyards standing outside of like politics and prose or some other like corny bookstore in DC at like fucking midnight when we've had highs of like 15 degrees out here the last few days like if you're standing in like nine degree weather to buy a book so because you really want to hear what like steve bannon has to say about some shit then like i don't know it struck me as it struck me as like i don't know nerdy and like irritating and irresponsible It's that, like, nerd prom culture, you know? It's that, like, celebrating, like, DC, like, access, you know, like we talked about when you defined lanyards a few weeks ago. Yeah, this is this is the town where, like, everyone brags about how they met, like, you know, like, the fucking senator of North Dakota's, like, chief of staff or some shit. It's like, come on, get, like, real idols. Uh, it's the flip side of, like, L.A. where... Yeah, I, L- I saw Henry Kissinger buying diarrhea medication. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, they're not even seeing people, like, that important. Like, you know, I've been trying to find fucking, like... 
<laughs> Sebastian Gorka every day because I drive through uh, his his uh, <laughs> town of residence, fucking McLean, Virginia, like almost every day. Um, I, I, every time I see a black like Mustang, I'm just looking for the fucking uh, <laughs> the Art War license plate. <laughs> yeah, one day we'll find Gorka and we'll get him on the podcast. There have been uh, several people actually who came to the defense of Michael Wolf. Hollywood Reporter co-president Janice Min actually backed up the story about a dinner party attended by Roger Ailes and Steve Bannon. So she said that everything in the uh, published in the story uh, was true because she was there. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's an eyewitness. And uh, Trump's team sent a cease and desist uh, letter to the publisher and they moved up the on sale date to... Friday instead of its planned release date on Tuesday. Sources suggest, uh, and again, this uh, this is just on Twitter, so it, it, there's no way for us to verify this, but Trump uh, is sending staffers out to buy dozens of copies of the book, too. <laughs> To, like, clear it from the shelves. Yeah, yeah, I did hear about this. I heard about, like, uh, interns having to come back with, like, 20-plus copies of the book, which is amazing because he's just driving up sales for the book, which means that they'll print more of them. <laughs> but um, <laughs> very Trump solution to this shit. Like, go buy them all. Like, use money. Throw money at the problem. <laughs> it's Trump logic. It's just fucking ridiculous. So let me just, let me just dive right in here because I... Honestly, was way more entertained than I thought I would be from all this uh, fire and fury excerpts that I read. So here's the first quote. Once he lost, Trump would be both insanely famous and a martyr to crooked (laughs) Hillary. His daughter, Ivanka, and son-in-law, Jared, would be international celebrities. Steve Bannon would become the de facto head of the Tea Party movement. Kellyanne Conway would be a cable news star. Melania Trump, who had been assured by her husband that he wouldn't become president, could return to inconspicuously lunching. Losing would work out for everybody. Losing was winning. Shortly after 8 p.m. on election night, when the unexpected trend, Trump might actually win, seemed confirmed, Don Jr. told a friend of his father, or DJT, as he calls him. Looked as if he had seen a ghost. Melania was in tears and not of joy. <laughs> so that's that's the end of that first quote. God, so they were crying uh, in the Clinton uh, camp campaign office and in the Trump campaign part. Like everybody had a shitty night. That's a pretty human reaction. Like any no saint. You know, like the theory. Exactly. Of like, um, yeah. Politics sucks because like. The only people who would want to be in charge of, like, a country are people who should not be in charge of a country because they're, like, ego- egotistical and every- everyone around here in D.C. is kind of like a resume patter and shit like that. Um, it's all about, like, self-aggrandization. If I was suddenly put in charge of, like, controlling the United States, yeah, I'd be crying. I'd be like, oh, shit. Like, I'm not qualified to do this. Well, the author goes on to describe, in fact, Trump started out really freaked out, like indignant. Clearly, this was not the outcome he wanted. But soon, and definitely by the time he came out uh, in the middle of the night to address the country, he uh, by then uh, had truly in his head convinced himself that he not only won, but that he was going to win all along. Let's... I mean, that sounds like Trump. Like, that sounds pretty fucking accurate. 
Definitely. He described it as a real-life version of The Producers by Mel Brooks's <laughs> musical, <laughs> which is totally uh, true! How funny is that? Um, what if a president could get more votes with some old bullshit and screaming than, like, a real politician? <laughs> oh, no, dude, God it's damn. true! Oh my God, Kushner could be that, uh... The Matthew Broderick yeah, role. <laughs> Early in the campaign, Sam Nunberg was sent to explain the Constitution to the candidate. <laughs> I got as far as the Fourth Amendment. <laughs> I got as far as the Fourth Amendment, Nunberg recalled, before his finger is pulling down on his lip and his eyes are rolling back in his yes. head. <laughs> He doesn't sleep. He's, like, exhausted. You think he wants to hear about, like, quartering troops? <laughs> yeah, also, uh, I guess, uh, Dan, you're not really, like, as, like, law, as legalistic as I might be. But law is so boringly, is written so badly and, like, reading any policy or any kind of, like, statute is just so unspeakably boring. <laughs> So if you've never done it before, like Trump, like you've never, in Trump's case, you've never done any like real work, then he must just be like clawing his fucking eyes out. Ailes, a veteran of the Nixon, Reagan, and Bush 41 administrations, tried to impress on Trump the need to create a White House structure that could serve and protect him. You need a son of a bitch as your chief of staff, he told Trump. And you need a son of a bitch who knows Washington. You'll want to be your own son of a bitch, but you don't know Washington. Ailes had a suggestion. John Boehner, who had stepped down as Speaker of the House only a year earlier. Who's that? asked Trump. <laughs> A year or two before. Like, holy shit. <laughs> unbelievable. And this is like a cable news addict. But here's the thing. Um, I actually, before we dig into more of these, I uh, included in the show notes, uh, Matt Taibbi, Michael uh, Wolf's story, according to him, is good news. I uh, wrote this in Rolling Stone. Uh, specifically because it shows that... If we're to believe these accounts, which they come from over 200 interviews, that clearly shows that Trump is disinterested and borderline, if not completely incapable of understanding or showing any interest in governing or policy or any aspects of his job other than like media gossip. If that is the case, which we've suspected already, that's way better than a potential timeline where Trump was a competent, uh, you know, president who could enact his horrific agenda rather than just, like, this weird, like... Like, you know, uh, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, if Trump was, like, a savvy dude who was like, I know exactly how to keep Muslims out of this country, I know exactly how to put this wall up, I mean, there's definitely, like, his immigration agenda has probably been, like, the field where he is most successful but even there i mean you can't just like unilaterally like seal the borders you know like there are other factors at play so taibi talked about trump jr objecting to wolf's claim that trump when pushed by roger else to name uh john boehner chief of staff replied who's that 
Trump Jr., uh, who Taibi refers to, of course, as Trump's large adult son, tweeted, just another pathetic attempt to smear at real Donald Trump. Hashtag fake news. And it's true. Boehner and Trump went golfing together in 2013. Trump even said out loud, I like John Boehner a lot. He also reportedly donated 100000 to a Boehner-linked uh, pack. So many say it is impossible that Trump wouldn't remember who Boehner was. As anyone who covered Trump in 2016 knows, the man's brain is an ooze of fast disintegrating neurons. Moreover, he has a long and storied history of forgetting stuff he not only just said and people he only <laughs> just met. What's amazing is that um, Trump is like an old man. But he's still the embodiment of, like, you know, people these days are scared because babies, like, play with iPhones and stuff. Kids who grow up these days are going to have no idea what, like, a pocket mirror is because they just look at their reflection on an iPhone or something. Um, but Trump is actually already like that. And he's, like, 75 or whatever. So <laughs> it's just funny to me. He's literally like an adult baby. So here's more fire and fury. Priebus demonstrated... No ability to keep Trump from talking to anyone who wanted his ear. The president-elect enjoyed being courted. On December 14th, a high-level delegation from Silicon Valley came to Trump Tower to meet him. Later that afternoon, according to a source privy to details of the conversation, Trump called Rupert Murdoch, who asked him how the meeting had gone. Oh, great. Just great, said Trump. These guys really need my help. Obama was not favorable to them. Too much regulation. This is an opportunity for me to help them. Donald, said Murdoch, for eight years, these guys had Obama in their pocket. They practically ran the administration. They don't need your help. Take this H-1B visa issue. They really need this H-1B visas. Murdoch suggested that taking a liberal approach to H-1B visas, which open America's doors to select immigrants, might be hard to square with his promises to build a wall and close the borders. But Trump seemed unconcerned, assuring Murdoch, we'll figure it out. What a fucking idiot, said Murdoch, shrugging as he got off the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... Trump doesn't have the capacity to, like, interpret the subtleties of, like, employment-based immigration visas. Isn't that interesting, though, that Trump is suggesting that Obama was unfavorable to Silicon Valley? Like, what? Yeah, I, I, I don't know where this, like, uh, Republican conception of like, nonsense. Obama as, like, fucking socialist, like, Maoist, fucking, like, anti-business... <laughs> Uh, like, struggle session having, like, leftists come from. It's so insane. Considering, like, anyone who's, like, even a, a cursory, like, leftist or, like, even Bernie Sanders supporters are like, Obama's, like, a, like Reagan. He's pretty right-wing. It's true. Oh, this is good. Bannon also began moving the furniture out. The point was to leave no room for anyone to sit. Limit discussion. Limit debate. This was war. So that's just from the uh, section uh, when they're talking about Trump taking uh, over the Oval Office from Obama. Bannon literally wanted to remove like all chairs from the room so people couldn't uh, influence the president. And this was at the time when um, a sort of tri triangular feud was uh, apparently brewing between uh, Priebus, Kushner, and Bannon. 
I think it's funny how Steve Bannon is like this shitty Rasputin, where he has like these like <laughs> weird little like uh fucking like Sinzu sort of like you have to remove the chairs from the Oval Office. Whoever controls the chair closest to the president has the president's ear, which is honestly probably kind of true with Trump. If you wear more shirts, you are less susceptible to assassination. <laughs> yeah, the shirts stop bullets. Uh, I, I am thinking, though, like, Trump, whoever is closest to him, given probably, like, his deteriorated vision and, like, mental capacity, whoever's closest to him probably is, like, the most powerful. Like, I bet the people who get fired from the White House are just people who got so far away from Trump that, like, they forgot he existed. So, like... <laughs> <laughs> or he forgot they existed. So, like, someone just sneaks up from behind and is like, fire Omarosa. And he's like, oh, who? I don't even know who that is. Get rid of her. <laughs> like, <laughs> I bet that explains a lot. I think it's clear that he's someone who believes the last thing he heard. And he's, you know, he's like a goldfish. On Friday, January 27th, only his eighth day in office, Trump signed an executive order issuing a sweeping exclusion of many Muslims from entering the United States. In his mania to seize the day, with almost no one in the federal government having seen it or even being aware of it, Bannon had succeeded in pushing through an executive order that overhauled U.S. immigration policy while bypassing the very agencies and personnel responsible for enforcing it and then skipping ahead. Almost the entire White House staff demanded to know, why did we do this on a Friday when it would hit the airports hardest and bring out the most protesters? Er, that's why, said Bannon. So the snowflakes would show up at the airport and riot. That was the way to crush the liberals, make them crazy and drag them to the left. Bannon's quote, uh, uh, to reiterate, wasn't the last part. It was, er, that's why. So the snowflakes would show up at the airports and riot. That's, that's what, what he said. Um, Steve Bannon said. Just, just to be clear. So Correct. <laughs> So the Muslim ban was to own the libs? <laughs> what? You know the aftermath of that, right? Like, in New York, like, fucking, like, taxi drivers, like, a, a, the taxi driver union, I'm forgetting the name of, we can link to this in the show notes, like, basically shut down JFK by refusing to go there, which is an insane action, like, brave act of, like, fucking, you know, direct action politics, just, like, shutting down, like, a major port, like... <laughs> So Steve Bannon was like, I'm, oh, I'm playing right. this all well, along. What well, they'll do is they'll, like, cripple traffic for a day. It'll cause massive chaos. Like, it's great, guys. Good governance. Not to get too far off course, but that was one of the first times I remember where uh, ban Uber, you know, a cancel Uber was uh, trending because Uber was kind of, like, busting. Yeah, yeah, I think that's where it came out of was because Uber, like, increased surge pricing um, and, uh, like, taxis refused to go. I think Lyft... Like, which is functionally the same as Uber was like, we're the nice one. And like, I don't know, refused to do it in solidarity with like the union in uh, New York that was against it. But uh, pretty insane, act, like uh, example of just like lit fucking direct action committed by people who like ordinarily you wouldn't assume have that much power in our society. And especially interesting that it's done on a Friday, which is traditionally like a quiet, it's supposed to be like a quiet news news night where you like dump a story. So interesting. But the Friday night drop has been a hallmark of the Trump administration. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. 
God, remember that Friday when the Access Hollywood tape came out? That that should be like a national holiday. That was some shit. Yeah, I remember. I remember that so vividly. And I remember yeah. just wanting to call my mom and be like, "Don't look at the news for the next like month at all. Yeah. <laughs> like, just not at all, please." My please. grandma, like, yeah. <laughs> I literally no. I think I did call my grandma. And I said like, "Don't look at the news," because I'm yeah. so sad. I it's just, too God, vulgar. Damn it! <laughs> Horrible. All right, we got a few more. This is going to be a long show today. On the Sunday after the immigration order was issued, Joe Scarborough and his Morning Joe co-host Mika Brzezinski arrived for lunch at the White House. Trump showed uh, them into the Oval Office. So, how do you think the first week is gone? He asked the couple. In a buoyant mood, seeking flattery, when Scarborough ventured his opinion that the immigration order might have been handled better, Trump turned defensive and derisive, plunging into a long monologue about how well things have gone. Shout out to the plunge. I could have invited Hannity, he told Scarborough. After Jared and Ivanka joined them for lunch... Trump continued to cast for positive impressions of his first week. Scarborough praised the president for having invited leaders of the steel unions to the White House, at which point Jared interjected that reaching out to unions, a Democratic constituency, was Bannon's doing, that this was the Bannon way. Bannon, said the president, jumping on his son-in-law, that wasn't Bannon's idea, that was my idea. It's the Trump way, not the Bannon way. (laughs) Kushner, going concave, retreated from the discussion. Trump, (laughs) changing the topic, said to Scarborough and Brzezinski, so what about you guys, what's going on? He was referencing their not-so-secret relationship. The couple said it was still complicated, but good. You guys should get just get married, prodded Trump. I can marry you. I'm a Unitarian minister. Kushner, an otherwise an Orthodox Jew, said suddenly. What? said the president. What are you talking about? Why would they want you to marry them when I could marry them, when they could be married by the president at Mar-a-Lago? Oh, this is so this is so surreal. I, what, what kind of world are we living in right now? So there was also this part. This is really fucking funny. Between themselves, uh, talking about uh, Jared and Ivanka, the two had made an earnest deal. If sometime in the future the opportunity arose, she'd be the one to run for president. The first woman president, Ivanka entertained, would not be Hillary Clinton. It would be Ivanka Trump. (laughs) I don't care how you feel about Hillary Clinton. Like, we're not the biggest fans of her on this show. But if we get first first female president, Ivanka Trump, it is because we are on the hell world timeline. <laughs> like, it's just not a good sign of the fucking way we're going. Hillary Clinton is a way better first female president than Ivanka Trump. No! I think, like, we'd have to just, like, have a civil war or something. Like, I, I don't even know what we do, but, like, it would just be so... I, I don't even want to entertain it. But having dispensed with Zucker, the president of the United States would not to speculate on what was involved with a golden shower. Ah, <laughs> he knows. It was worth it to get one in there. Here, arguably, was the central issue of the Trump presidency, informing every aspect of Trumpian policy and leadership. He didn't even process information in any conventional sense. He didn't read. He didn't really even skim. 
Some believed that for all practical purposes, he was no more than semi-literate. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> this is all stuff that should have been obvious. I mean, I feel like uh, later generations are going to look back at this and be like, what the fuck were they thinking? Like, not in like a, you know, hopefully it doesn't get to the point that it's like a, like a Hitler thing where people look back and they're like, oh, all Americans are kind of like complicit in this like national atrocity. But um, with him, it's still like fucking like how dumb are we that we all are like, hey, guys, like we're not sure if we can impeach him. We're not sure if we have a case against this guy. Like it's just so fucking patently obvious that like there's it's that like you should just immediately like desire the impeachment of Donald Trump (laughs) just because for for anything, for the fact that he's a rapist, for the fact that he like steals from his contractors anything like he's just so fucking stupid and incompetent on all grounds that i really think later generations gonna be like how did they allow this guy to like be in charge of their fucking country and if future generations like remember our this time in america and all of the americans out there now whether we uh, are Trump supporters or not as like complicit in this, then we fucking deserve it. Like, like we're all a part of this, unfortunately. Um, All white people at least. (laughs) For sure. Let's move on. What's the story you want to talk about, uh, about Dana Gresham? Yeah. Okay. So uh, Doug Jones, friend of the show, uh, frequent topic topic on this uh, podcast um, has been, like appointing people to his uh, congressional staff. And uh, he made headlines for appointing the only black chief of staff for a Democratic congressman. Um, this guy's name is Dana Gresham. He's an Alabama native. Um, he was an Obama appointee to the Department of Transportation, I think, uh, in the last few years. Um, but uh, this got me thinking. I was like, wow, there's only one black chief of staff in Congress. Um, and I looked it up. And it's actually, he's the only Democratic uh, chief of staff who's black. <laughs> the Repu- Two Republican senators have black chiefs of staff, those being Tim Scott of South Carolina and Jerry Moran of Kansas. So I was just, like, blown away by um, all of, like, the fawning media of, like, oh, Doug Jones is going to appoint such a diverse, like, group of people to his congressional staff. And I was like, that's great for Doug Jones. And that's, you know, I'm not, like, discounting that it's an achievement for Dana Gresham. But it's like the Democrats are running with this as a selling point for their party, like that they're the tolerant ones. But even just by their own like standard, they're fucking failing. Like they're losing to the Republicans on this as well. It's just insane how like impotent and pathetic the Democrats are. Uh, We talked about, I think in our second episode, the DNC becoming like whiter um, with the Tom Perez administration. Um, over it and it's just like like I don't know how they keep self-owning themselves with this sort of shit like when I found out that like the Democrats didn't have any fucking black chiefs of staff in the Senate but the Republicans did I was like then why are they even beginning to they should be hiding this fucking fact like or it should be like a direct challenge from Doug Jones to his party to be like you know step up your game I mean it's just like it's really funny to me no, Sam, he chooses the radical position that Trump should not get in trouble for grabbing pussy. Yeah. In a liberal culture which seems to really value representation, uh, their elected representatives do a pretty shitty job of, you know, like, standing up for it. 
Yeah, I mean, do better, DNC. <laughs> uh, speaking of like other, because I mean, we spent a long time ripping on Trump, uh, which is because Trump is much more egregious than anyone else in politics right now. <laughs> but uh, I think someone uh, who we've kind of seen take on a really foul uh, persona in the last year has been Obama. <laughs> uh, I'm not a fan of posts. Like jet ski Obama, like smiling. Yeah, fucking, fucking hanging out with Richard Branson. And, and like, um, he's, he's out to hang these days. He wants to be cool and well-liked. Um, I think he got as a like what like a fucking legal scholar. He was not like well loved until now, and so he thinks he's kind of like a rock star. So he put out this um, best of 2017 list because um, Obama's like you know a a pitchfork hipster from like 2008 apparently. Um, <laughs> and uh, there were some books on there uh, which I thought were funny. Like the most radical one on there was Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. Um, which is funny to me because that's kind of like the radicalism that like centrist libs like Obama are okay with. <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, it's it's funny how there was nothing like anything, nothing further to the left than that in the last that came out in the last few years when like the left has been pretty like pro prolific in the last few years as it always is. Well, you can't knock that specifically. Uh, really makes the case for criminal justice reform that I think you know any fucking Democrat work there. So I can't. You, oh you, yeah, I'm not digging. On, on the new Jim Crow at all. Yeah, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't say you were. I just wanted to reiterate that. It, it's good that he's fucking reading that. Like, he should be. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a good part, but it's... Imagine Donald Trump fucking listening to five minutes of audiobook from that. Like, he, oh, come on. It's, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> He'd be like, this is fake news. He'd turn it off, like, instantly. Um, so, like, Obama's books are fine. Like, Obama's a well-read guy. I, I didn't have, like, that much to say about them. But his music list, like, was some fucking bullshit, I think. I don't know. Like, yeah, okay, he likes Frank Ocean. He likes Chance. He likes Kendrick. But then, you know, there's a Harry Styles song. I feel like he put in this Chris Stapleton just to, like, appeal to, like... <laughs> A certain demographic. All right, so there's three categories. There's the the no way you actually listen to this, uh, you know, stolen from Malia edition, uh, where it's just all right. So sit on this. That really got me. Um, the song "Unforgettable" by French Montana with Sway Lee. Uh, let's play the audio right here. Okay, so this is, like, a song is about, like, being lascivious at night. And, like, Obama, like, Swaley is from uh, Ray Sremer, the, the duo that brought us Black Beatles and other bangers this past year. Like, Obama's not about that fucking Srem life. I'm calling it as it is right now. I'm telling you, Obama's not, like, <laughs> you know, he's not listening to, like, Blase or anything like that. He also put Butterfly Effect by Travis Scott. Do you know that song, Dan? I, so it sounds familiar, but I'm not sure. Uh, I think a running theme of this podcast is, is going to be when Dan doesn't know any rap tracks. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Butterfly Effect is about, like, doing Molly and, like, fucking Kylie Jenner, basically. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> like that's really the the theme of the lyrics i think as far as i can tell um wild thoughts is on there uh the dj khaled song with rihanna and bryson tiller um this song is funny to me because uh bryson tiller has a line on there that's like uh i'll fuck you till you're burned out cremation <laughs> And like, I just think of like thinking of Obama listening to these and be like, mm, oh, yeah, like, fuck you to my uh, burn, burned out cremation. Yeah, another song that gave me that effect was the. Um, now let now let me be clear. I'll <laughs> fuck you till you're. <laughs> yeah. Um, another song that triggered this on me was. Uh, the song Havana by Camila Cabello with uh, featuring Young Thug. And Young Thug's verse on this contains the line. And I'm going to do it in the Obama face. She caking on me. Uh, <laughs> she caking on me. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> um, and then there's stuff like like Scissors on there. He probably stole that from Michelle. Um, and then Harry Styles, as he said, which he stole from his younger daughter, probably. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, the other like uh, category I found um, is the the NPR rock edition, like you said, with Chris Stapleton. He's also got the National on there, and uh, he's got Portugal the Man. I mean, like Dan, you like that band, but like, did did you listen to the album that came out this year by them? No, I, I you know I heard yeah. like a song or two, and just like most of the good indie rock from the mid 2000s like it's just kind of mediocre though i will i yeah. will endorse uh sleep well beast by the national i actually really oh, like that, it that's yeah. a great album i love that one yeah. um i mean shout out obama for putting on the system dies in total darkness which is a great song uh and previously i think obama has had better music taste than this like when uh to pimp a butterfly came out yeah um, i, I do that remember that how much a dollar cost was one of his favorite songs which is a, a unbelievable track and, and at least in my opinion but uh, this time around, he put he put "Humble" by Kendrick Lamar on there, and I think this is uh, this goes into our next category, which is the political baby edition. Um, we talked about how Obama is kind of naive politically, and uh, some of these tracks kind of reflect his like, you know, I feel like this is stuff that like the eighth grade activist in me would have said is like very important. Um, some of his, some of which is actually like good stuff, like uh, "Mi Gente," the J Balvin song mm. um, that he featured Beyonce on. All the proceeds went to that from that went to like. Um, hurricane victims so i mean it's cool that obama i guess shouted that out either way uh i thought his song his song choices were kind of like hilarious so you are better attuned to the state of the protests in iran than me so i think i need you to explain to me what the (laughs) hell is going on there sure sure uh this is something that's like a developing story and it's hard to like issue a you know, something to say on it now. But um, earlier this week, there's some articles that kind of dealt with, like, how these protests have started and, you know, what we know about them so far. Um, Basically, on the 28th of December in Mashhad, which is uh, Iran's second largest city, there was a wave of, like, seemingly spontaneous demonstrations. And in contrast to the Green Revolution that we saw in Iran in, like, the 2000, in 2009, which was centered in Tehran, this seems to be more decentralized. Uh, The protests are, like, more provincial. And they've taken on kind of, like, an economic character more than a political character, 
although there are political elements, um, which relates to the fact that I guess after the Iranian revolution, um, it stayed in place by putting in like large social welfare programs that have been steadily rolled back as the government suffers from sanctions and, you know, kind of slides more to the right wing. Uh, something we can empathize with, I guess. Uh, and so they slash a lot of these benefits and people are starting to like have real material needs. So a lot of it is like based in real materialism. It's also, I think, uh, Mashhad is a more conservative city than Tehran, a lot more religious. So there's a bit more of like that element to it. And it's just interesting at this point. But the reason I said we don't want to like necessarily like leap in and make crazy statements about these protests is that the right wing, um, including some winners, has just gone nuts with this story. They're like, oh, they're going to destroy the Ayatollahs. They want freedom. They want French fries. Like all this bullshit. <laughs> so I linked to some opinion pieces that I'm going to try to pull some quotes from. There's one called the Iran protests. Here's what the U.S. should do now. And it basically is like a like a bullet point of like Fox News, like ideas for how to like capitalize on this and ensure regime change. Like it calls for new sanctions on Iran, which is crazy because I mean, this these protests seem to be a, a, like a reaction to the economic turmoil that's been kind of imposed on them because of sanctions. I mean, it just seems like they're trying to destabilize the entire region, as we've seen in like other countries, such as like Yemen or, you know, basically anyone that like Saudi Arabia has a beef with, we want to like destroy. <laughs> um, and I, we have I actually have, Nikki ha before you do Nikki Haley's quote, do you think Trump's threats to tear up the uh, nuclear deal, the Iran deal, will create more turmoil on the ground? I mean, I think so, because um, it just introduces like more instability to a government that has had like, I mean, they basically expected the Iranian government to fall apart after the 1979 revolution. But um, they basically managed to avoid that um, by using their oil production um, as a member of the of OPEC to like fund sweeping like left wing I guess social programs for the citizens of Iran. Which like if people are like well fed and taken care of, and uh, then they're not going to necessarily like want overthrow. But I guess the sanctions are a way of like destabilizing that system um, and introducing any kind of instability there is going to like create more of a rhetoric for the sanctions and for keeping uh, for like, you know, regime change, which will freak out the Iranian government, which will then, you know, wind up hurting the Iranian people. But so, something that was something I was thinking about when I first heard about these protests, because I just you gotta wonder how much more can these people take you know yeah i mean uh definitely like so many of their grievances are like strong and anyway uh i think it's pretty obvious that we shouldn't be uh, like to your point we shouldn't be like clamoring for more instability in that region <laughs> like uh it's just it's fucked up nikki haley uh basically just called for like international action and solidarity with the demonstrators um, she said that, that they would seek emergency UN sessions on Iran. I mean, as far as like domestic policy in Iran goes, I don't know how much the UN can really like influence that. But Trump, you know, someone who can do something, of course, is our fearless leader, Donald J. Trump. He says, big protests in Iran. The people are finally getting wise as to how their money and wealth is being stolen and squandered on terrorism. Uh, looks like they will not take it any longer. The USA is watching very closely for human rights violations. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> not every fucking Muslim. Like it's 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 this like every Muslim is a terror. Like why is he talking like ter- like terrorism? I feel like he's the last person I want to hear from in terms of these complex issues in the Middle East. Like it's yeah. just it's literally like you're uninformed like geriatric relative like yelling at the tv after not sleeping for like three days like to have someone who's so incompetent as like the emperor is just so horrifying um and the the fucking the most insane thing to me is i mean that like iran is on the travel ban <laughs> uh, so he doesn't really care about them at all it's just like these naked attempts to like I don't know, overthrow a government. <laughs> like, chill the... F- the U.S. is just wild with what they're willing to do to, like, gain control in that region. They're willing to just, you know, fucking send every fucking stable country down to the depths of, like, instability. Uh, anyway, I have a Ben Shapiro article <laughs> that I want to I look at. So before we get into this Ben Shapiro thing you pulled. I just want to say it's unbelievable to me that people think this guy is cool. Like what, when you listen to Ben Shapiro, like people look at this like little like orthodox Jew with like, like a really high voice. Who's basically a white supremacist and they think he's cool. Like what? Yeah. And I mean, people always ignore the fact that, um, He's what well, he he had that like disturbing tweet about you know uh, Israelis build settlements and Palestinians just like swim in sewage and shit. Yeah, it's a <laughs> disgusting racist. Yeah, really disturbingly racist fucking things that he says. Uh, I think he also like thinks that like black people don't face any uh, obstacles in today's society. They're just like bad at stuff. Oh, and then he uh, he had like a, a segment where he went like line for line through that like future song like way. Yes, is that? <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, Can we yeah. link to the audio on that? I want to hear that so badly. This is the 68th most popular song in America. The actual lyric is, Where your ass was at, dog, when N-words wasn't feed me. Where your ass was at, dog. I mean, how many grammatic errors is that in one phrase? Where your ass was at. Are they trying to ask, where was your ass? First of all, don't end a phrase in a preposition. Sorry to get, sorry to get anal about this, especially in a, in a line about where your ass is, but where your ass was at, dog. Why is there a dog in the song? I'm completely unaware as to, to what canines have to do with anything. Oh my god. I never heard that. <laughs> All right, so what's this Ben Shapiro alert that you pulled? So this Ben Shapiro article is called Protests in Iran Expose Left-Wing Insanity at Home. He's basically arguing that the left is triggered because Trump is in favor of the protests and that exposes them for the Obama administration's feckless Iran policy. <laughs> Which is just, it's just odd um, the way that, uh, I guess Ben Shapiro uses like uh, dumb guy college libertarian logic to like make these like sideways claims that only really make sense if you are like 
if you define the left as like being 100% on board with Obama's Iran policy, which I don't think they maybe are. <laughs> no, of course not. Um, he has a great part where he's like praising Trump. He says, the United States under President Trump hasn't seen any serious anti-liberty revanchism. In fact, under Trump, regulations have dropped precipitously. The economy continues its pattern of growth and press freedoms have actually been strengthened. Despite popular opinion, women aren't on the verge of enslavement into Vice President Mike Pence's handmade tale, nor are black Americans in danger of resegregation or political disenfranchisement. Ugh. Uh, and then he continues, Yet while the Iranian protest against a regime that reportedly hangs homosexuals from cranes, members of the hard left in the United States insist that the protesters against the Trump administration demonstrate bravery similar to that of Iranians, but risking death by an Islamist regime. So this is like a classic straw man that I'm going to crush instantly. They fucking, uh, like, this only applies to like the stupidest fucking people who went to the, who like are you know marching on washington like the the worst kind of pussy hat people i don't want to like diss anyone who went to that protest but like um i went to that protest yeah and, but there's like, a lot of like selfie taking uh most annoyingly for me at the protest uh when i went was like all these people with like built like pictures that they had drawn or printed out of like Putin and Trump kissing or something like it was just like come on like Trump's gonna have real fucking damage to like certain communities in this place and just because like you're just offended by based on like an America first thing is it doesn't make any sense for you to be like upset that like Trump is treasonous like he's destroying your country that's what you should be upset about but either either way let me just crush Ben Shapiro here Sam um, Sam Wagstaff eviscerates Ben Shapiro <laughs> This only applies if you define the left as, like, the stupidest pussy hat person who says, like, I stood up to the Trump administration the way that, like, an Iranian protester stood up to, like, a much more repressive, at least politically repressive government. Like, I, you know, it's stupid as fuck. And also, I mean, at the, like, not at the March on Washington, but at the inauguration the day before, there were the J-20 protesters who are, like, fighting for their fucking lives in a court case that's preposterous, like, using tr ex highly trumped-up um, charges to try to put them in jail for, like, extended periods of time. Uh, we should probably link in the show notes to their, um, like, legal defense fund. But either way, um, like, just Ben Shapiro at make, makes all these kind of, like, dumb straw man arguments um which are really a way of just mischaracterizing the other person's argument the other person being the left i think the left has a lot to see in these protests given that they have like an economic character given that they're decentralized it kind of calls back some of the like you know great moments in leftist protest history like the russian revolution and shit um it's too early to say and there's been there has been like a death toll i think the last i heard was like there were 20 to 30 people who had died which is bad but I mean, over a thousand people have died in Puerto Rico so far, according to some reports, and like the Trump administration's not doing shit about that. So <laughs> it's an absurd double standard. Absolutely. Now, Sam, I believe it is as good as time as any to enter the pop culture corner, where this week I don't want to recap any of the material at length because I think it would be a better experience for people to just watch it and make up their own minds but dave chappelle uh, dropped two netflix specials 
making four on the year in 2017. Pretty impressive. Four four hours of stand up in a year is I, I don't even know if that's ever been done. But and they only had to pay him like a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, with twenty million or something. I don't know. The uh, specials uh, initially two came out earlier this year. Uh, there was a lot of backlash towards some of the material that ended up uh, included in this special. And Sam, we uh, talked about this a little bit. I don't know, it's interesting to see how people react to someone like Dave Chappelle, who no one would want a Dave Chappelle stand-up comedy hour where he's catering to a, you know, a sort of liberal critic's uh, opinion of what's appropriate to say because we we want Dave Chappelle to be Dave Chappelle. We don't want a watered-down uh, version of Chappelle where he's not saying what he thinks because... I don't know. Personally, I thought the first two were pretty okay. They were, you know, I don't really remember much about them other than that really good O.J. Simpson uh, joke uh, that uh, he kept referring to throughout. But the, I thought these two were amazing. Just, I thought, to me it was like, and I work with a lot of stand-up comedy content at work, and it's, a lot of it's really fucking bad. But to me, watching Chappelle's new Netflix specials, uh, to me, it felt like I was watching just the utter master of the craft. You did not have that reaction. <laughs> yeah, I had the reverse. So I'd actually seen Dave Chappelle in 2014 in New Orleans when he, um, David Spade opened for him inexplicably. That's pretty cool, <laughs> but, uh, honestly. I, uh, that's, kinda, that's, that's, a good, cool. that's a good uh, bill. Tommy yeah, boy. I mean, <laughs> He, it doesn't mean his stand-up's any good. <laughs> but either way, um, so I saw him, and he, he had done most of the material I think you see in the Texas special. In the Netflix, there's the two specials uh, that he came out with earlier this year. Right. One of them is, like, like live from the heart of Texas. The other one, I forget the name of. Most of the stuff from the Texas special I had seen before, um, except for, like, the jokes that got the most attention, which were, like, the transphobic kind of jokes. And... Uh, Definitely, like, we should not, like, ex- like, I don't know, act like those jokes aren't, like, transphobic. It's just how to contextualize them, I guess. Like, I'm not here to defend Dave Chappelle at all. Um, but and, at the but same had- time, you should, I don't feel that we as, like, you know, cis white dudes have, like, a grievance against him for being, no, no for making that joke. I do kind of, like... Which I, which, sorry, I laughed at. It was funny. Like, I, I didn't laugh that much, but like, I feel like I can feel sympathy for someone who would like hear that joke and find it like, hear some of the jokes he made and find them like, just kind of ignorant, really, I think is the word I'm looking, I'm finding. Um, Certainly. And um, ignorance in comedy is not always a bad thing, but go say what you were going to say. It was just like, I think a big, uh, talking about straw man arguments, going back to Ben Shapiro, Dave Chappelle seems to think that every trans person is like caitlin jenner like that they're rich that it's like a purse it's a lifestyle decision and that it's something that like and something like for like rich white people i think is what his conception of it is which ignores like the fact that like many many trans people are people of color um especially like the the violence against trans people is uh primarily like an issue of people for with people of color um you see though i uh, but here's my here's my disagreement him using the most famous transgender person in a joke 
I don't think that necessarily indicates that that's how he sees this entire community because but like, he does he does speak about trans people as like a collective more so he if he's if he was just saying this about tr- Caitlyn Jenner I would be cracking the like you know what I'm saying like Caitlyn Jenner is like a, like a, she's a conservative Republican she's like an asshole like, she's a Ted Cruz supporter Jenner. yeah of course yeah exactly like she's a joke she's not a, like a she's not like a representative of the trans community or the LGBT community. But either way, I mean, com- stand-up comedy and even just comedy has, like, until, even when you're watching, like, the 90s, like, 90s TV shows, their politics aren't even just, like, straight up, like, like you know, uh, fucking cis, like, gay men is pretty fucking bad. Like, in general, um, com- like, if you watch, like, Richard Pryor or, like, Eddie Murphy or, like, Oh, I mean, dude, watch that Eddie Murphy in a red leather suit. He's he's just saying like a uh, faggot the entire time. Like, yeah, no, absolutely. Like, there's there's absolutely precedent for this. It's a new thing that like people are put under pressure like this, which is I think is a good thing that like because it makes you. A, I think I will argue that um, political correctness forces you to be a better comedian because going for going for jokes like like Dave Chappelle's jokes about trans people that punch down makes you a worse comedian. That's my argument on why I don't dig um, like the most recent Dave Chappelle specials because he doubled down on something that like I think was just a big punch down that I just don't find comedic. I find lazy. And uh, yeah, so but continue with what you were going to say. I think it's, it, you know, it's certainly interesting to bring in the punching up versus punching down argument and... Really, um, honestly, what I thought we were going to talk about more was the uh, story that was getting on attraction about what he said about Louis C.K. Yes, that was the other thing. Was the sec- okay? So the now we're getting into the specials that he did most recently. So we have he has two of them. He's got Equanimity, where I think the the big slugs from that were that um, he doubled down on the trans thing, and then the uh, second one was called like the Bird Theory or something. Does that make sense? Yeah, bird theory. I, we'll 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 link to it in the show notes. Uh, I don't I don't feel like looking it up. Um, but in that one, he leads off with jokes about Kevin Spacey and Louis C.K., which is wild. Yes. So he got some like heat online, I guess, which obviously like uh, anyone could have predicted. I think Chappelle himself obviously knew this was going to happen that he'd you know be you know an outrage cycle for a day or two. But wow, we get we get heat online. Everyone's got heat online. Yeah. So. I think that certainly since our episode about Louis C.K., like, I definitely, my opinion on his situation is a little more complicated than it was at that point, because I do think there's a lot of hypocrisy going around in terms of how others have been kind of, uh, like, Glenn Thrush, the New York Times. Arguably, what he did was worse than what Louis C.K., it was accused of, I don't want to do, like, the ranking of these, the like, spectrum. S- the spectrum of, like, sex pestery, but... I would say that doesn't reflect on Louis C.K.'s position, though. Like, that's just a separate issue. Like, that's... So, okay, my ultimate take from it was it's bullshit that there is such a backlash about what Dave Chappelle said, um, about Louis and about the trans community because the point of comedy is to see this person unvar you know like I want to see what he fucking thinks and yeah. if we fucking continue to create a culture where it just it's the same fucking bad Trump jokes we get more Saturday Night Live fucking Alec Baldwin like I want people like Chappelle who are brave 
like comics and like you know thinkers to like say what they're maybe they're wrong sometimes but it's okay that they're wrong i guess I, yeah I, I i've and that's and that's and that's what i'm saying so I, I didn't i didn't mean to go so hard to defend louis i mean there was a fucking you can listen to fucking 40 minutes of tape of me railing against louis in our like fourth or fifth episode but i just think that like i'm not saying Chappelle like opened up my mind to like hmm, maybe louis got an unfair shake i'm saying that it's not fucked up that he said it if he thinks it. And I, I think that it's such a lame, like, criti- to, to say that it's like people can't hear a, opinions that make them uncomfortable and that disqualifies the work. And that, to me, sucks. I think that you're right in that um, comedians always should, like, be saying what is kind of on their mind. But um, I do think that, like, people have a right to express grievance with what they, with what they say. I don't think that like, uh, it's like, it's, there's no absolutes in this. There are things that I absolutely think are bad. Um, and I, but, uh, and I wouldn't say, but like, you're, you're kind of correct in that a comedian should be saying what's on their mind and it's up to the people to judge. Like the fact that like these ideas make so much money says more about us than like Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle's not like leading the battle of you know like social equality in this country you know he's like a fucking comedian nor is he making these nor is he making these hiring and firing decisions nor you know nor like he's just an observer and personally for me like i i I can't sit here from and say from a week ago what i thought was like the you know the better like lines but like i and you know the people i watched it with like we really enjoyed it and we agreed kind of at the end that like whatever you think of like what he says like you know if you if you listen to old carlin tapes it's really not it's not all you know yeah. you know or bill hicks like bill hicks especially i mean you know what he, he's like i think he had something uh you know if you're if you're like an accountant you should kill yourself or like things like that it's like you know I don't want there to be a door closed on there ever being a guy like Bill Hicks or George Carlin I mean, again. Yeah, you know? it's a tough call to make, I think. Um... So I think, but I think this ties into what we were going to talk about next um, with the take from uh, Miles Johnson. Uh, Miles Johnson's like a really dope author and a good follower, a good follow on Twitter um, at House Mava, which I think is it's H-A-U-S-M-U-V-A. But um, he wrote one, which I think um, kind of hit where, what I was thinking about the Dave Chappelle specials. These came out when the first ones came out. Uh, the first two Dave Chappelle Netflix specials came out earlier this year uh, or last year. Um, and it's uh, one of the quotes I pulled from it is Dave Chappelle recently released his first comedy program in over a decade via Netflix. The two sets were filled with violent ideas on rape, trans folks, and gay people. As a queer feminist thinker, I, of course, failed to arrive at the enlightenment or relief provided in the humor. But unfortunately for him and the mostly white crowd, I doubt I was the centered gaze when Chappelle was writing his script. As a Chappelle fan, I was disappointed for reasons that were less political. I had an artistic beef with Dave Chappelle in this moment. When did he get so lazy? Which I thought was a good... Because, like... You know, like you said, I don't think that, like, we're looking to Dave Chappelle for his, like, you know, beautiful ideas on egalitarianism. Um, He's traditionally worked with, like, stereotypes and, like, you know, kind of 
you know, divisive shit. Of course. That's his, yes. That's, it's that's really what you were laughing at back in the day. I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's good that you were or that I was, but it's, it's the way comedy kind of goes, um, which is, you know, or at least that it has gone. I think it's cool that people are changing that these days, but uh, it's thing we're going to all have to come to terms with the times as our, you know, problematic pasts. Um, at any rate, but just going... God, I just, I'm sorry. I just, can I just say, I stumbled upon a, t- a tweet by Ricky Gervais early this morning that made me laugh so much. I don't want him impeached before we see him wander out onto the White House lawn, bewildered and naked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry, say what you were going to say. <laughs> say what you were going to say. <laughs> That's true. Um, but yeah, he goes on, like, whether I'd agree, agree with Dave Chappelle or not is of no real consequence. I am frankly not surprised of the same nation that elected a man that grabs women by their pussy without consent would also produce someone who jokes about rape in a way that minimizes the impact of the act as opposed to interrogating through humor the world that makes these actions possible the naive child inside of me is still is shocked i know dave Chappelle is smarter than these moments i know even if i do not agree with where he arrived that there were more complex and interesting spaces for him to explore and i know that he could have done it but he did not uh, and he basically goes on to say that like under like white capitalism you know, you're not like you, the the most critical people are not the most successful people. Like, you know, everyone hates an academic. Everyone hates to be like taken apart. Um, so it's much easier to just like perform ignorance, I guess. I mean, but also there wasn't this like critical community around comedy like there is today where every like word is parsed out and like it's just this is like yeah, a new thing you know it makes you better at right shit. and i'm it not saying i do it makes you so like all critique is good of course look at it the right way but you can't but you can't i see i feel like you can't argue though that there's no bad effect there's no bad uh effects from that is what i is i think what i'm trying Maybe to just, I just, I just hint at as well creative like like the effect it has on people like forcing them to like kind of be more creative and think of stuff that hasn't been done before um there's definitely times where there's backlash against stuff that's not like that i don't think is like problematic we uh, you know conservative comedy is all is you know we've talked about how much it sucks you ever try to watch like a dennis miller special um yeah that's what happens when you punch up or punch down literally all the time yeah (laughs) right like it's i'm not saying that um, the fact that there's, you know, a, a ton of, like, criticism about comedy and, you know, the most famous comedians as bad, I, I just, I feel like there's a difference between being, like, SNL doing, a, like, a bit where, like, Baldwin and Poon are shirtless and, like, it's a gay joke and, like, Chappelle making, like, a joke about how Louis C.K.'s accuser didn't have, like, big dreams. I would say you have kind of a point there, but Dave Chappelle is on, like, fucking Netflix and got paid, like, tens of millions of dollars to do this shit. So it's not like he doesn't have a platform. Yeah, but you it's can't... Begr- you can't... decided to do it, for sure, but Netflix kind of decided to do it. What? That's not Netflix deciding anything. They don't tell the comics what to say. I guess, but... I don't know. It's... There's definitely, like, a relationship. So, like, I think this is interesting, because we very rarely on this show ever disagree... Yeah, I think we pretty strongly disagree. <laughs> but um but I think we both we've we've said our point. I don't know, but I but again, I'm I'm but I agree with a lot of what you're saying too. I just I I, I just think that my what I'm saying is I think like I think it it, it behooves everyone to kind of 
think about these things from all sides because like i live in uh, you know i work at sirius xm in the comedy department so like sifting through like like you know comedy all day i think about this is like shit i think about all the time so it's just like it's stuff that i'm very conflicted about and i have uh worked with people who say problematic things who are like the, the coolest like nicest people and i think that the level of like uh online backlash uh sometimes is incongruous to uh what perhaps is uh i don't know necessary <laughs> I mean, as much as we love terrible takes on this show, um, I do think that there were also a lot of like pretty strong critiques that I'm glad that are out, they're out there and people are contending with them. So I think that all criticism is good for the most part, except for stupid stuff that you see on like NBC, MSNBC. That's that's where I'm at. Uh, oh, I wanted to talk about uh, Jesse David Fox from Vulture. I, we're going to include this in the show notes. Put up this article about uh, our year of bad Trump jokes. It has this... Did you have the article open? So do you see this, like... It's really weird to see this collection of Trump impressions, like, all in a row. It's it's so depressing. Oh, God. Um, it has, like... Le- I mean, Trump kills comedy. He kills comedy. That's what this article is really about. Um, so I'm just going to read a quote from it that I thought was really... Uh, I thought it was good. It's true. He is... He's... Uh, Psy, huge target. <laughs> he, said, he actually put the sigh in there. But that doesn't mean he's the best target, or even a good one. This boom of political comedy is less motivated by the people making it than an industry attempting to seize upon the market's addiction to consuming as much as they can about the president. I was told by one comedian on a politically-leaning show that while their team saw an opportunity because of how aggressively the networks were seeking such projects... They weren't particularly excited about doing something topical. It's not that all comedy made about Trump this year has been bad, but that his administration has resulted in comedians making worse comedy than they would have otherwise. That's because Trump is a bad subject for comedy. He's shallow and played out, and already what people expect from comedy about him is bad. Um, Patton Oswalt talked about this in his uh, recent Netflix special. Did you watch that, Sam? It's fucking great. He spends the first maybe 10 or 15 minutes talking about Trump, just straight like Trump jokes and stuff. And then he's like, all right, we're done with that. And it was like, if he, it was good because if he hadn't done the Trump jokes, like it would have been like, oh, Patton, you know, what was that about? But yeah, I um, I always enjoy his stuff. And then he did the rest of the special was this really amazing uh, routine about uh, his wife passing away. And, um, you know, it was really hilarious and uh, touching. But um, he also included a, uh, in the article, a uh, tweet from a Daily Show writer named David Ang- Angelo. I just want to give him credit because this is like really funny. Uh, people, quote, this is a tweet that says, people, quote, Trump will be good for comedy. And then it says, comedians, quote, the Ninth Circuit rule, uh, <laughs> ruling should be upheld for the following 35 reasons, unquote. it's funny because so much of I mean I hear that so much of open mics now are people like reading their bad Trump tweets that are about kind of just like everyone's trying to do this political comedy um and it's you mean like us I feel like (laughs) but I feel like with podcasting it's different than doing it in like a stand-up routine yeah but that, that was what it was saying was that like you're to go on stage and kind of just talk about like policy it's like that's where it can be really bad for comedy yeah, for sure. Uh, well, it is funny. This is like, uh, I guess, 
something we talk about a lot on the show is the weird fusion of like politics and pop culture that's acute occurred recently i think it's funny that uh next to the first quote you pulled out one of the related stories is like suddenly jimmy kimmel is our cronkite yeah what the fuck yeah come on that's like that's like taking the like you know, John Stewart eviscerates climate change deniers. That's like taking it to another level. Literally calling him that for like doing a few bits on the healthcare thing because his son was affected by it. Which, like, listen, I think that Kimmel doing that was real was a good thing. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that like oh that was just like showing off or whatever. Like, no, he brought attention to an important thing, but to call him Walter Cronkite is just like embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. It just I mean and then you see the real effect in that when you see look at like Doug Jones's like priorities rather than like policies on his fucking webpage and shit like that. It's not a good thing. People are just getting like obsessed with attitude and like interpersonal shit as politics. But either way. So did you think that did you agree with the article's assertion that I know you agree with the uh, assertion that he kills comedy but that the comedy being done if Trump weren't in power would just be better inherently. Um, I I almost think like definitely like this. Yeah. I think the main difference is that Trump made us really aware of how dark and like scary our political situation has gotten. Um, when Obama was in power, it didn't matter that the Tea Party was like surging and just like winning up so much support at the state and local level. It's weird um, these days you hear like the alt right and the, you know, kind of like Trump American right as about, you hear about them as if they're somehow different from the Tea Party, which is strange. Um, but I think that Trump is just a scarier face. Like, it, you know, you should be also worried that Obama had the ability to, like, launch nukes. Like, no one person, literally to quote, you know, friend of the show, Kanye West, no one man should have all that power. So, like, when it comes down to it, I'm just, you know, I think that Trump killed it because we couldn't pretend like these issues didn't exist anymore. To end this week's program, I have a story of, you know... I feel like I have not been a good uh, story host on this show because I don't think I've given enough, like, weird New York stories because everyone loves, like, New York, weird New York, right? Hey, I'm walking here. i got a story <laughs> time for you. Hey, Gabagool, uh, give me that uh, salami, a little uh, brancola, broccoli, a little, uh, a little, uh, the, the, uh, the lechuga. Um, I'm, I'm glad you're doing the accent because uh, you're actually Italian. It's kind of problematic if I do it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to do that on the uh, street and see what happens. So, Sam, you ever have a weird experience on a New York City subway? Have I ever not had a weird experience on the New York City subway? Once I was the weird experience. Um, the most stares I ever got in the New York subway was when I bought a stalk of sugar cane from, like, Chinatown. And I thought the guy was going to cut it up for me like they usually do. But he just, like, let me walk out of there. Like, this six-foot stalk of sugar cane <laughs> cost, like, a dollar. And uh, I've never gotten more stares on the subway. So once I was the weird thing. I would say the following was the weirdest thing that ever happened to me on the subway. So I went on after work one day uh, on the 6th train heading uptown, and I come upon a man sitting down. Now, I was standing up uh, across from him. Um, uh, uh, you know, he 
I don't know if he was homeless or just disheveled, uh, drunk, or he seems he seemed a little out of it. But you know, I, I'm I'm someone who like still like I'll fucking always not always, but I, I often uh, give money to panhandlers on the subway, and you know I'm not someone who like detests like the homeless in New York, like. You know, it's it, there's some really disgusting people uh, in the city who would, uh, you know, have no empathy for the homeless, and that's just uh, awful. But I don't know if this guy was homeless, but he had um, one normal hand, and the other hand, I would say, was like a baby hand. It was like the size of like a like it was really small. And well, obviously, I'm gonna break you now, so. He had, like, a baby hand, and it had, like, three fingers, and they were all, like, kind of displaced and deformed. And so, you know, I, I was, you know, it's horrible. I mean, you know, it's got the, the guy's, you know, he's got a, he's got a deficiency. So that's, you know, that's, that's, his, that's his issue. So it's New York, baby. Everyone's, everyone's welcome here. You know, it's, it, you know, the Bronx, baby. No, I don't live in the Bronx. But, so... He just starts, like, I don't even make eye contact with him. I just am, like, kind of standing on the subway, minding my own business. And he just starts, like, calling me fat. Like, he's just, like, he's, like, you fat piece of shit, you fat. Like, and I'm just, like, wait, is he, am I, is, where, I'm, and I'm looking around, like, where's the fat person? <laughs> I'm the fat person. So he's, like, verbally harassing me on the subway as I'm going home. And I'm just, like. I'm, like, looking at people, like, is this guy for real? And other people, like, you know, are... Some are ignoring and some are just looking at him, like, what? And, you know, he's waving his weird, deformed hand. <laughs> Not a weird, I'm sorry for calling it weird. I'm sorry. So, he's verbally abusing me. And, um, you know, after, like, you know, we go, you know, past, like, 72nd, 86 and we're going up and I'm getting off at 103rd um and then at 96 I had the idea to get retribution for him calling me fat I'm gonna knock his shopping bag over because I saw that he had a shopping bag oh man just with my foot as I'm walking out as an accident because I was really pissed because you know I don't mind like being uh you know on the uh Certainly on the heavier side, but, you know, you don't want to just have it shouted at you by a fucking ogre on the subway. So, I, um, <laughs> I knocked on the bag, and he's like, you f fat motherfucker, fat, he's really, it's like, he really leans in on the fat thing. Usually it's like, you Jew, you Jew face shithead. <laughs> you know? Usually when you're looks... accosted by people on the subway. Yeah, yeah, I get uh, I get the alt right going after me. Damn, I guess I, I guess I gotta move to New York. I called him a deformed fuck. <laughs> That's not nice. Right as I'm about to get <laughs> off the subway, well, he's calling me a deformed fuck, so I'm calling him a deformed fuck, <laughs> okay. and then he's like, and he's like, I'm gonna kick your ass, and then I said, with what, your little baby hand? Then doors open, I sprint off the train, run home, never see him again. And that's my weird subway experience. I abused a handicapped uh, man verbally after he verbally abused me. And if that's like a disabledist or whatever the fuck you want to say, problematic, I admit it. There you go. Fuck him. He was a real jerk. And 
I hope he fucking fell on the tracks and died. There you have it, guys. Average uh, New York encounter. Um, anyone who wants to donate to my legal defense fund of the guy with the baby hand, then uh, you check for the link <laughs> in the show notes. <laughs> Were you the guy with the baby hand in like one. a costume? <laughs> we should just have a whole episode where we disagree on everything, and I just yell at you the whole time. Yeah, it's honestly, maybe it's more interesting. Let us know if you like, maybe we should find more stuff we disagree on. Okay. <laughs> add us if uh, that's something you're interested in uh, at plunge underscore podcast. Uh, you can follow me at spaventacular at S-P-A-V-E-N-T-A-C-U-L-A-R. And uh, Sam, where can people follow you? At W-A-G-S-T-A-N-K. And uh, listen to me on uh, the Craig Ferguson show and on the Talking Shed show on Faction Talk 103, Sirius XM. And I think we I think we had a, a good one this week, huh? Yeah, yeah. No, this is very fun. Um, the fire and the fury rained from the one-armed man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, and, and continuing with the tradition of this episode of my disagreeing with Dan... Um, you're not allowed to find out anything about my employment ever. So don't try. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of my, uh, one of my, uh, favorite things about my job is, uh, it's gotten me some, some online trolls. <laughs> I've even like shared them on Facebook. Like, I think it's funny. It's, it's like, I, I think in like 2018, like the best you can do is have like haters. Yeah, man. Haters is an understatement. God, Sam, how funny is that fucking uh, connection to the producers? It's so fucking accurate. Like, they, they they built this, like, campaign to just get to the end and fail, and they fucking, like, succeeded, and now they have to, like, deal with that. Yeah, well, uh, I think that's going to become, like, this is just a teachable moment around the world. Like, uh, politics are complete dog shit these days. Uh, the rules are all topsy-turvy and uh, get used to it. <laughs> That's it, folks. Uh, we'll see you next week. Uh, this is The Plunge. It's the fucking plunge, eh? Hey. It's the red